Uh, could you please turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 22, which is on page 20. There's the 20 theme here. Genesis 22, 20 to 23, 20 on page 20. That's my age as well. Uh, on your way in also, um, Indran pointed out your outlines and there's an outline of where we're going in this sermon um, on the inside of one of the handouts. I'll lead us in prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our refuge and our strength uh, and we know that uh, Nothing compares to the promises that we have in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us as we uh, consider those promises. Um, we pray that your Spirit, uh, who gave us your word, would work in our hearts, uh, that we may respond rightly to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, whether or not we've actually taken out one, all of us know what a car loan or a house mortgage is, don't we? Before you take out your loan, the bank usually asks you, or should, not all of them do nowadays, but the bank asks you to pay a deposit. Maybe about 20%, perhaps, of the value of the loan. Now, one of the reasons why the bank will ask you to pay a deposit is to show them that you're able to save up that amount. And therefore, give them confidence that you'll be able to pay the rest in time. It also means that the value of your asset depreciates, the bank has still got a buffer. Today, we're going to watch a commercial transaction from the ancient world. A piece of land is changing hands in a place which is now known as Israel or Palestine. But the land will be paid for in cash, and yet it points to a deposit. Something from God in our own lives that comes first, guaranteeing something more to come. You'll see what I mean by the end of the sermon. For the past months, we've been following the life of Abraham. Abraham lived in 2000, about 2000 BC. God had called him, made him some very special promises. God promised him many descendants, and they would come through his son Isaac. God promised that his descendants would, would own the whole land of Canaan. And God promised him that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham trusted God to keep his promise. So much so that in chapter 22 of Genesis, Abraham had been willing to, to sacrifice his son Isaac in obedience to God's command. God had promised that Isaac would be the heir, and Abraham was so confident that God would fulfill his promise that he, that he went ahead. And God stopped him at the last minute, provided another sacrifice for, instead of Isaac, and Abraham's faith was rewarded. It was seen for what it is. So most of Genesis 2 was about Abraham's only son, Isaac. But the verses at the end of Genesis 22... Tell us about Abraham's brother and his family. Let me read them again for you. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. 
Buzz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Bildash, Jopan, Bethuel, Bethuel father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah born to Nahor, Abram's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. I wonder if Abraham was the comparing sort. God had promised him many descendants. Through his descendants, all the world will be blessed. And he's finally given him Isaac. Ishmael is told to send away. So really, Abraham's only got one son. And now he hears his brother has come with me. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Plus one, two, three, four sons. He's got twelve sons. That's enough to start a nation with, isn't it? And Abraham has only got one. Or if you insist on including Ishmael, one plus one. Now, I don't know how Abraham felt about this. We're not told. He might have been such a godly man that he was happy for Nahor and trusty in God's promises for himself. Maybe he was able to rejoice with those who rejoice. If it was me, though, I'd try to do that. But I'd also feel a bit of jealousy. A bit of a competitive attitude. How come God promised me all these descendants and then it's my brother Nahor who seems to be getting them. Do, do you know what I mean? What Abraham would have to remember is that his promises were for the long term, not for the short term. He would have many descendants, but not yet. As of now, there is only Isaac. Even though he can look back at his brother Nahor, and see, he's got twelve sons. And you know, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have the promises of God. Like Abraham, we have the promises for the future. We know the future. But sometimes it's hard when we compare ourselves with other people. Sometimes we even compare ourselves with people who don't have the promises, and they have better health, and they have more wealth, and they have all the things that we wanted and they don't have, and Dear friends, what we do have is far, far better, isn't it? We have our inheritance of a perfect relationship with God and each other in the new creation at the end of the age, where there is perfect health and abundance in every way, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But, but that is a long-term promise, not a short-term one. Like Abraham, we need to keep our eyes on the big picture. Not compare ourselves with each other. Can I just ask you, is this loud enough? Is it? Can you hear it clearly? Okay. You know, even as, you, even as we consider that though, we see that God is using Nahor's family for Abraham's good. You see, this blessing on Nahor is actually good for Abraham. Because of all the sons of the story that we've got listed here for, for the sons of Nahor, there is there's only one important one, and his name is Bethuel. He's the youngest of the sons by Nahor's wife. It's mentioned at the end of verse 22. And the reason he's important is because he fathered Rebekah. And Rebekah would be the woman that Isaac would marry in chapter 24, 
so that the promises to Abraham would continue in the future. You don't be jealous of others, will you? God works for the good, all things, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Before we actually get to meet Rebecca next week, we say goodbye to another important lady from the beginning of 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Saying goodbye is hard. My family and I had to do that last week for Judy's dad. And I know we're not the only ones in our congregations that have had to do that recently. Mourning and weeping is that's appropriate in this age because because death is a sad thing. But as Christians we know that, that death is not the end. I'm thankful that my father in law is a follower of the Lord Jesus and believe and trusted in Jesus, his Saviour and King, and we know that he's with Jesus now and that he will be raised in glory at the end. Death is not the end. But it's hard. Abraham mourned and wept for his his beloved wife. But he also had to make funeral arrangements. And so he comes to the Hittites, one of the peoples in the land, with this problem. You see, Abraham was promised the land. He was living in the land. But he didn't own any land. He He was a wanderer. He was a landless nomad. And he needed somewhere to bury Sarah. So from verse 3. Abraham rose from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a, bar- for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham was very polite to the Hittites made this request to them, didn't try and grab their land. They were very polite and positive to Abraham. Verse 6, they answered him, Hear, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So you don't think of him as this, you know, landless nomad, no fixed address, wandering in their territory. He's, he's He's a prince of God. He's highly regarded by them. However, they're not offering to sell him land. They say, look, use any of our tombs. On the one hand, they're being very generous to him. But on the other hand, they're reluctant to transfer any land ownership to him. Uh, But Abraham, he's good. He, He could have written a book on the art of negotiation. Just watch how he's really culturally appropriate and polite and deferential. He knows what he wants and he's pressing for it. Verses 7 to 9. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Malpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. 
And he takes up the Hittite offer of choosing a tomb. But he's not going to let the Hittites just, just let him use it. He will insist on buying it so it will be his. And the owner of the field makes his speech in verse 10. Ephron, sitting among the Hittites, answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. All who went in and out of the gate of the city. See, this is an official place here. The gate of the city is where the business transactions are done. He says there, he says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, it's not clear from this transaction whether he's transferring the land to Abraham or he's just giving it to him to use. But Abraham needs clarity. He wants to buy the land. So it will be permanently his. And so in verse 12 he says, In the hearing of all the people, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. So he's insisting on paying for it. And Ephron is going to name his price. Watch how he does it in such a polite way that it looks like he's still offering it for free. Verse 14 to 15. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver... What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Isn't that clever? Isn't that, isn't that lovely? Yeah. Huh. Now, if, if you or I were there, we might have said, Oh, thanks very much. Are you sure? Are you happy to give me this land worth 400 shekels? That's really generous of you. Let me buy you dinner. Or, you know, you're invited to the funeral or something like that. But, of course, Abraham, being culturally attuned, knows that Ephron has just named his price. All right? He's just saying, this is the price of it. He's being polite, not looking greedy, but he's given a figure. Some people think it's a really high figure. Uh, we can't really know for sure, because at least we don't even know the size of the field, really. But anyway, Abraham doesn't try to, to beat it down or anything like that. He's very rich, he can afford it, and what he really wants is a piece of the land. And so he says in verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So he went out and he got it. He paid for it. And so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was the east of Memre, the field with a cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. See, the land was now irrevocably his. Belonged to him. Wasn't just using it or borrowing it. He negotiated for it publicly. He paid for it. It was his. And after that, verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham. There's a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, why do you think God put this story into the Bible? I mean, I'm sure there's lots and lots of things that Abraham did, lots of transactions that he made that were not recorded for us. Why is it here? It's not just to get an insight into ancient, near Eastern art of property negotiation, is it? Why is it here? We get a clue from the way the writer sets it up. That is how he says, at the beginning of at verse 2, 
Sarah died at Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. It says that right at the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the account. And right at the end of the account, verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave that is the field of Machpelah, east of memory, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now, if I said, we rented a shop house in Ampang, east of KL, in Malaysia, to you, you'd be thinking, oh, okay, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? And then at the end I said, look, we're going to have our guest night on Saturday at Ampang, in Malaysia. And you think, oh, of course I know it's in Malaysia. Oh, you, you don't just say that, do you? We're all in Malaysia. We all know Ampang's in Malaysia. So the people who read this, they don't know that Hebron's in the land of Canaan. Why does he keep on saying it in the bookends? Well, remember how God promised Abraham that land of Canaan for his descendants. Well, the Spirit emphasizes here that all this happens in that land. Because, see, that's, that's the only piece of land in the land that Abraham receives in his lifetime. This was, this field and cave was a bit of the promised land. That was it. Abraham now has a piece of the land of promise that he's been waiting for, that he's been promised. This is that little deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so this field, this cave, this small piece of inheritance would be a very special place to Abraham and his family. This would be the place where they would bury their dead in hope of the future. And so if you look forward to Genesis 49, you've got Abraham's grandson, Jacob, giving instructions about how he's going to be buried. What does he say on the screen? I am to be gathered to my people, bury with me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Now, this, uh, Jacob is in, with his whole family is in Egypt at this time. And he says, take me back there. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, f- with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. They buried Abraham, Sarah, his wife there. They buried Isaac, and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, so that's Jacob's wife. The field and the cave, that is in it, were bought from the Hittites. See that cave and that field. The first bit of land and the only bit of land that Abraham and his family owned in Canaan. And they considered it precious. So valuable that they wanted to be buried there because that was the part that symbolized the whole. What about us, brothers and sisters? Our inheritance, we know, is in the new heaven and new earth. That is what God has promised us. That is the land that we look forward to. Revelation 21, coming up on the screen, talks about this inheritance together. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's our inheritance. It's not an individual heaven, is it? It's a, it's a community, it's a city. Made up of all God's people. 
pure and holy and clean. Ready to meet Jesus as the bride. Ready to spend eternity loving and adoring him. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what our inheritance is about. It's about being with God. It's about God himself. Intimacy, transparency, acceptance in community. Where there is no more sin, nothing to be ashamed of. No more suffering, no more sickness, no more grief, no more pain. He will wipe away, verse 4, every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Our inheritance is God himself. Being in relationship with him, with him that is perfect. Unhampered by sin and all its consequences. A life which together we are caught up in that eternal love that exists within the Trinity. That is what we are made for. That is what we have been promised. Let me read you something written by a famous Christian writer of the 20th century named C.S. Lewis. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy, an echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life, to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Abraham was promised the land. And we have been promised that eternal inheritance. And just like Abraham had this, this field and cave to bury his dead, this, this is a little foretaste of the promised inheritance. We too have been given a foretaste of what is to come. Our New Testament reading from Ephesians 1 identifies us. Here it is. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, that is the first installment, the deposit, the, the down payment, the pledge of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. See, our inheritance is God, and we have received God now. Receive the Spirit. And our Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's work in us is, but the Holy Spirit's work in us now, compared to what it will be at the end, is, is like the field compared to the nation. 
It is real, it is tangible, it is wonderful, but it is small compared to what is to come. By the Spirit, we know God as our Father now. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. And so we can experience something of the, the intimacy of relationship with God now. And yet, that is still marred by sin. It is still marred by our misunderstandings of what God father, what's God's, God's fatherhood means because of our own experiences. We really do know God as our Father. But our intimacy with God as Father is, it is limited. But one day that limitation will be no more. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We shall know Him fully as we are fully known. And our hearts that call out to Him as Father now will truly know His Father love and care. By the Spirit we know that Jesus is Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because, because of the Spirit's work in our hearts, we really know Jesus is our Lord. And we belong to Him. And yet you and I, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still struggle, struggle with our tendency to, to be our own Lord again. But one day that struggle will be over. And we will willingly and lovingly and completely be able to submit to Him as Lord. By the Spirit we have been given new birth. We have a new life in Christ. If it weren't for the Spirit, we wouldn't have spiritual life. But you know, one day we will see a regeneration, a renewal, a new birth, not just for individuals, but for the whole universe. Regeneration of all things, Jesus says, when the Son of Man sits on His throne and says, Behold, I make all things new. The Spirit produces the fruit of holiness in our lives now. He leads us to reject the desires of the flesh, our sinful nature. And so we are growing in love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. But on that day, we will no longer be struggling with the flesh. We will be completely holy as He is holy. And that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control will be, will be fully expressed in us. Jesus baptizes us in the Spirit into His body. By His Spirit, all those who belong to Him are one. And yet, in our sinfulness, we still fight and quarrel and have an imperfect community. But one day, when there is no more sin, our community will be perfected. And we will not only enjoy a perfect relationship with God, but with each other. Friends, it is great to be a Christian because we have the Spirit. By the Spirit, we have a loving relationship with God as Father. By the Spirit, we have a loving relationship with each other. And one day, we will experience this completely. And forever we will share, together, without limit, in that eternal love of the Trinity. And what we experience now, as good as it is, will be like a field and a burial ground compared to the promised land. Second point of application. 
Abraham, his dealings with the Hittites, is an example for us of how to live in our world now while waiting for our inheritance. Remember, Abraham had been promised the whole land. God told him he belonged to his family forever. But when he needed a burial ground, he politely asked the people of the land if he could buy it. It wasn't, look guys, God's given me this whole land, I want that piece, I want it now. It wasn't like that. Because why? He knew it wasn't time. It wasn't his time. God had already told him it was going to be 400 years before it was time. And so he lived in his time, in a way appropriate to his time, trusting that God would fulfill his promises and give him the inheritance in his time. And friends, we are to do that as well. The times we live in, we live in the time of the overlap of the ages. That is, the kingdom of God has come, but it is still to come. Right? It's like, this is, this is, this is history, this is creation, this is a new creation. That's the future. We live in the overlap. Okay? Christ has come. The kingdom has come. Jesus died and rose again. He is king. But he hasn't come back yet. We haven't, got the, the, we come, haven't come to the end yet. We're in the overlap. So we live here, now, in between the times. The kingdom of God has... If you've done introduction to the Bible, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. But it hasn't yet been consummated. Hard way of saying, it has started, but it's not fulfilled. We're living in the now, but not yet. See, we have the Spirit now, but the end of things is yet to come. We are seated with Christ in heaven now, but we still live in this world of death. In the Old Testament, Abraham buried Sarah. And even though Jesus has defeated left, we, we still face it. And we still live in a world of suffering and pain and sickness and difficulty. While my family was saying goodbye to Judy's dad last week, Paul Levinigam's brother John was battling for his life. He'd been at the beach, heart stopped pumping, eventually revived, and we don't know what we don't know what damage he's done. Pray for him, won't you? There are many good things we are thankful for, but we still live in a broken, messed up world. From time to time we see, we see glimpses of the world to come, but we are still here. Of course, we see the new age most clearly when someone believes in Jesus and receives the Spirit. and That is, a, that is an occasion for great rejoicing. We also hear of people who are healed in ordinary or extraordinary ways, and we are thankful for that. We receive provision of God's material blessings. We're thankful as well. But friends, when it comes to healing, when it comes to prosperity, we need to remember where we are. We are still this side of glory. Abraham lived in his time, in a way appropriate to his time with the expectations of his time. 
trusting that God will fulfill His promises in His time. Brothers and sisters, healing and prosperity are part of our inheritance. Yes, they are part of our inheritance at the end. We are promised a new and perfect body in the new creation. We will be lacking for absolutely nothing in the new heaven and new earth. But healing and prosperity are not promises for this age. They may be part of God's plan for us now. Healing and abundance may be part of God's plan for us now. Sickness or financial difficulty may be part of God's plan for us now. Because God's priority in this life is that we should grow in being godly. And he will give us whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus. So don't be taken in by those who claim that we're meant to have everything now. Pie in the sky when you die and steak on the plate while you wait. Don't claim that if we really believe then we will be guaranteed of healing. Or that prosperity and abundance is God's plan for all his children. All we need to do is, is believe it and claim it and, and give money to the church. No, friends. We are in the now and not yet. Like Abraham, we look forward to the inheritance to come. Our expectations must be consistent with the time that we are in. See, the danger of not realizing the time is twofold. First of all, it can lead to the wrong gospel. God wants you rich. God wants you healthy. God wants you happy. Come to Jesus and he'll do it for you. Too many times I've heard people who are meant to be preaching the gospel of Jesus end up preaching the gospel of prosperity. If you ask them, is Jesus Lord? They'll say, yeah, of course. If you ask them, did Jesus die for our sins and rose again? Yeah, of course. But what they emphasize, what they preach, it's something else. The gospel of prosperity. And that is a false gospel. It does not save. And the other danger of confusing the time is, is losing hope. Because you see, God's promises are for the new creation. And they are secure. Absolutely secure. He doesn't promise to always heal and prosper in this life. He can and he does. And we are thankful for it. But he doesn't promise that he always will. But if people think that he does, and you know what happens when he doesn't? They lose their faith, don't they? What would happen if Abraham thought and declared that God had promised him the whole of the land in his lifetime? And he died with only a field in a cave. Well, then he, together with everyone who he had told about God's promises, would either conclude that God doesn't exist, or he didn't really make promises, or he doesn't keep them. Early on in my time at the cathedral, there's a guy who came and told the leaders here that God had sent him to start a healing ministry here in the, in the traditional service. Well, not, not actually, in the cathedral. And he claimed to have the gift of healing cancer. And he wanted to make the cathedral some kind of center for the healing of cancer. He came to be interviewed by the people on the cathedral's pastoral team. I asked him, what percentage of the people do you pray for that don't get healed? And he said, no one. Everyone I pray for gets healed. And I knew he was lying. He was a charlatan. He was a fake. And 
thank God this, he was shown to be the case before he could do too much harm. God can and does heal people in response to our prayers. But he doesn't always heal, does he? He doesn't promise to, not in this life. But he does promise to give us a new life with him. For there is no more sickness and no more pain. And on that promise he will deliver. So we mustn't give people false promises that lead to false expectations and then dishonor God by making him look like a failure. Like Abraham, we are to live in the time God has placed us in a way appropriate to the time with the expectations of the time trusting that God would fulfill his promises in his time. God promised Abraham the land for his descendants but all Abraham saw was a field with a cave to bury his dead. And that was all he was able to buy. And the rest of it, well, he'd have to trust God to give it to his descendants. By then he would be dead and there would be nothing that he could do to help God along. All he could do was to trust God to keep his promise. See, when he was alive he could negotiate and buy the field, but when he is dead, well, it's completely in God's hands. You have to trust God to keep that promise for after he's gone. And friends, Unless Jesus comes first, we will be dead one day. And when we die, there is nothing we can do to make God keep his promise. Nothing at all. All we can do is to trust God to keep his promises after we die. To raise us at the last day and to give us our inheritance. God kept his promise to Abraham. His descendants did indeed inherit the land. And God will keep his promise to us. We can trust him with our life and with our death. So we must enjoy the fields while they last. Rejoice in the blessing we experience now. Especially thankful for the gift of the Spirit. But if you are in Christ, then your real hope Your real inheritance is yet to come. To look forward to eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we We come before you now, trusting in the wonderful promises that you have for us in Jesus. Father, we thank you for the new heaven and new earth, those firm promises that will never fade. We thank you for your goodness to us in this life and for the way that you give us glimpses of that in in so many different ways in so many different times especially for the gift of your spirit Lord 
Father, as we enjoy those things now, we pray that you help us to live in hope of the future. Help us to keep our eyes on that inheritance that is to come. Please, Heavenly Father, would you comfort and would you strengthen us. Father, we pray for all those who are in trouble and distress. We pray for your hand upon us. Father, we pray uh, that in your mercy that you will indeed um, give us some of those good things from that, from that land of the future. Father, especially now we, we pray for Paul's brother, John. Father, you know the strife that he's in. And we ask, Lord, in your mercy that you will bring healing to him. We pray that you will restore him. And Father, we know that whatever the case is, you are working out your good purposes for him and for those who are with him. We pray especially for Paul this time. We pray for his family. We pray that they would know your comfort and strength with them. We pray that they would hold firm uh, to your promises. Help them, we pray. And help us all who struggle in all our different ways. Keep our eyes on the inheritance to come. And help us live in this world in light of the next. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.